0: Hey, good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Alan, and I am not the preacher. I am uh, one of the elders, and occasionally they ask me to kind of fill in and talk, so we're going to do the best we can today. Any baseball fans here? Yeah? You ever watch a baseball game that goes so long that, the, that one team eventually burns up all the pitchers, and they have to bring in, like, the backup catcher to pitch? That's a little like what you're going to experience this morning. I'm a little bit like that backup catcher that's up on the mound. But I'm going to do the best I can to throw something over the plate in maybe a way that you can do something with it. We're in the middle of a series, a sermon series called Storyteller. And what we're focusing on is we're focusing on the parables that Jesus told. Parables are just simple stories that are used to illustrate a point. Jesus taught mostly in parables how many of you guys have had some exposure looking at Jesus' parables before most of you yeah you know me too you know I I became a Christian 36 years ago this summer yeah I know that was a long time ago but I started going to church whenever I was just a tot and I remember learning from the time that I can remember some of these parables for some of you in this crowd maybe you're getting your first exposure to what Jesus actually taught both of us, whichever camp or crowd you're in, whether you're familiar with Jesus' parables, or whether this is all new stuff to you, the challenge is the same. To try to get back and, and not assume that we know what Jesus taught, but to actually look closely at what he says and see if there's something there. I was asked to preach on, uh, on a particular parable that, that you'll find in Matthew 13, 44-45. And this should be a pretty familiar parable, To most of us here at Greater Alton. So, the challenge ahead of us this morning is to see is there more left in this for us to discover than maybe what we've seen before in the past? I'll read it to you real quick. Uh, By the way, all the the verses, I've got a favorite translation now. It's called the New American uh, Standard Bible, 1995 edition. So, if your translation reads a little bit different, that may be the reason why, and it'll probably be just fine. I I think that uh, we'll probably work our way through any translation differences. Jesus said there, now this is uh, one of of many parables that he's telling about the kingdom of God in, in Matthew 13. And he says this, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value... He went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, how many of you guys are familiar with this parable like I thought you would be? Yeah. Where did you first come into contact with this? Was it in one of our studies that we call the Seeking God study? Yeah, if you've been going to church here anytime in the last 25 years and you've sat down with somebody and uh, had a personal Bible study, likely in that very first study they showed you this parable. You may have even taught it to somebody else. Do you know what, or do you remember what the main point that you were trying to get out of this parable was? What's that? You're valuable? Okay. Dan, your relationship with God is valuable? Any others? I think what I remember teaching and being taught was that seeking God would cost us everything. But that it would be worth it. Does that sound familiar? Okay, good. Uh, Did anybody actually teach you anything about the kingdom of heaven? Whenever Whenever you looked at this verse. Here's an interesting thing. Go back and look at this again. Jesus is telling a parable. I think it's actually two parables. He's saying the same thing. He's saying it two different ways. They call that Hebrew parallelism. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like... And then the next one, the kingdom of heaven is like. What do you think these parables are really about? The kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Good guess. Come on, wake up. (laughs) Everybody get involved with this real quick. Because I'm going to try to build on some points here. So, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Did anybody tell you what the kingdom of heaven was? No, maybe not. I know nobody did for me. So what happens whenever... It's a part of the Seeking God study. What happens to a lot of us is we assume what the kingdom of heaven is. How many of you thought that the kingdom of heaven was the church? A few of you. How many thought it was heaven itself? A few more. How many thought it was maybe both? A little bit better. Okay, so depending on what your understanding of the kingdom of heaven is that's going to have a large degree to say about what you get out of this parable and what it's actually teaching, right? Well, the kingdom of heaven, first thing that I want to point out to you is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. You've heard both phrases, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. I think Matthew is the only author that we have in the Bible that calls it the kingdom of heaven. And in one place he does call it both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in the same verse. So we know that he's talking about the same thing. About six or seven years ago... I came to the understanding that I really didn't understand much about the kingdom of God. I thought before that that I did. But largely, I thought it was the church. Now, part of the reason why I thought that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was the church was because that's the way we talked about it. I remember back in the early 90s, people would say, Well, you need to do this for the kingdom. This is an important thing for the kingdom. We need to, you know, and and kingdom this, kingdom that. And really, they were always talking about the church. So I just assumed that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was the church. If we read Jesus' parable that way, if we were to replace kingdom of heaven with church, again, the church is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Again, the church is like a treasure hidden in a field. Is that going to really ring true if if we follow that line? Well, I'd started thinking, no, <laughs> I don't think that fits. And there were other verses that came along. So I challenged myself to actually begin to study this. And the deeper I dug, the more alarmed I got at how off some of my understanding was on some things. Found this verse. This one really shook me up. It's in Mark four, verses ten through thirteen. And Jesus said he had been telling them that he had just told them the, the, the parable of the sower. And he says to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. And then he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Ooh, wow, that's interesting. How then will you understand all the parables? See, Jesus is, tre- is teaching in parables, and they're asking him, what does this parable mean? And he says, you don't get it? And he's saying, I'm trying to give you the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand anything that I teach. You're not going to understand any of the parables. Well, that kind of lit a fire under me. Because if I understand what Jesus is saying, is if we don't understand what the kingdom of heaven is, we're never going to make sense out of any of the parables. And since Jesus taught mostly in parables, if we don't understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we may not really understand anything Jesus is teaching. So is this pretty important for us to understand? Yeah, I think it is. I think actually uh, on your notes, I've got a question there. Why is it so important for us to understand what the kingdom of God is? Because without understanding that, we may not understand anything. Everything might be slightly off. So, whenever I began to study, I found out about three major things that I hadn't understood. One was, I found out that while the church is a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom is actually something much bigger than just the church. The church is in the kingdom of God, no doubt. But the kingdom is actually bigger. I also found out that the gospel, the good news that Jesus and his apostles and John the Baptist were preaching, was always about the kingdom of God. Always about the kingdom of God. In fact, that's the same message that we're, we're supposed to spread the gospel. Well, because I had understood it to be the kingdom of God, to be the church... I thought spreading the gospel was about getting people to come to my church. See how that can get kind of off? The gospel is good news about the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just about... And see, I had thought, it's also just about going... God's main plan is for me to go to heaven when I die. So I thought the gospel was about telling people the good news that they don't have to go to hell. They can join the church and go to heaven. Well that's in the gospel that is good news but that's kind of like Richard's illustration with the the meat that gets lopped off see that's that's what we call the plan of salvation but the gospel is so much more than the plan of salvation but because I was only thinking about going to heaven I lost a lot of really important things last when I found out was that God wants me to help him bring his kingdom to this earth not just for me To go to heaven, I think he intends to bring heaven here. I know I've said that from this pulpit before. I don't know if you caught that or if that's something different or if you've always understood it that way. Well, as I began to study this, it took me a long time to study it, and I even took four months of Wednesday nights to teach a class on the kingdom of God back in 2010. Any of you guys go to that class? And I'm still learning about the kingdom of God. Well, I don't think I can tell you everything about the kingdom of God. If it took me four months, I don't think I've got enough time this morning to try to unpack everything. But one of the guys in the young adults was talking to me a couple weeks ago. He was over at the house with his wife. And he said, hey, something that you were teaching the other day. I found a video and it just seemed to make everything I could understand it after I watched this video. So I looked it up and watched this video. And it's really good. It's about six minutes long. And I think it's probably the best place for us to start this discussion of what this parable about the treasure and the pearl is. So, if you would, dim the lights and throw up the video, and I'll come back to you in about six minutes.
1: So, in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So, I understand our space really well.
2: We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a
1: little fuzzy, and what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space.
2: So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping we don't talk a lot about that
1: which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the bible is all about how they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how god is bringing them back together once again so
2: let's go back to the beginning Where heaven and earth they're completely overlapping
1: yeah this is what uh, the bible's description of the garden of eden is all about it's a place where god and humanity dwelt together perfectly no separation and, and humans then partner with god in building a flourishing beautiful world and so on
2: but as humans we wanted to do things a different way we wanted
1: Uh, overlap.
2: Now there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses, and the other
1: But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So
2: how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal
1: sacrifice.
2: Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with
1: this? Yeah, the the idea is this.
2: What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses, and forgiving people of their
1: sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened
2: by Jesus and... They kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to
1: reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked
2: about as being a temple. He's also talked about
1: To end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Okay. Humorous, right?
0: But is that a little different maybe than, is that, not? have you heard this before? Have you seen it quite like that? Can you see why it's so significant that we stop and make sure that we understand what these parables are teaching? And what the kingdom of heaven is and what the kingdom of God is? By the way, that, that video... Uh, these guys have got a project. They call it the Bible Project. They're a nonprofit group. They, didn't, they don't charge for anything. Everything that they make, they give away. They do accept donations. And I think that they're worth donating to. And I've actually made a couple of donations to them. There is so much. I mean, that was only six minutes... But there's a lot that they put in that six minutes. And they just state it so matter-of-factly. I would ask you to press pause and not just swallow what you just saw, but to check it out. So you can go back and watch this video either by going to... And I put the, the address, the URL address, the web address in your notes. You can download it there for free. And they also have a PDF study guide that will give you the verses that they use to teach and to make this, this uh, study off of. I think it's pretty solid. Anyway, so now, if we can start with that, that the kingdom of heaven is not about us going to heaven someday, but it's about us partnering with God to bring heaven here. Now let's go back and look at that parable that we were looking at today. And let's reread it and see if it takes on any different shape or any different flavors. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field... Which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Does that sound a little different this time? Because what's worth so much is this spreading of the kingdom of God. This overlap of heaven coming to earth. That's what's so valuable. And he says it again another way. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, understanding that is starting to give me a different perspective on what this parable is is teaching us. There was more here than what I originally thought and more here than what I was originally taught. Now, in that Seeking God study, how many of you guys finished it talking about the faithful Bereans and giving what we call the Berean challenge you guys do that you know what I'm talking about and the the challenge goes this way make sure that you read these verses but read them in context there are three rules to understanding the Bible I think context context and context it's probably the same three rules of reading your newspaper or anything else you know if you don't take something in its total context I don't know if you're always going to understand what's really being said makes sense I gave that challenge a thousand times. Thought I had accepted the challenge, but I'm finding now that I didn't read enough context with some of these. So what's the context of these two parables here in Matthew 13? Well, if you go back and look at Matthew 13, we're reading about a day in Jesus' life. He gets up one morning, he walks out of the house, he goes down by the lake. And a crowd gathers. So he starts teaching, and he tells several different parables, and they're all about the kingdom of heaven. They're all about the kingdom of God. In fact, he starts off talking about the parable of the sower. And then he talks about the parable of the, of the weeds, or the parable of the tares. Then he talks about the parable of the mustard seed. Then he talks about the parable of the leaven. Then he quits. And he goes home. He goes back inside. And his disciples follow him. And they start asking him, could you explain what you mean by this parable of the tares, this this parable of the weeds? And so Jesus starts explaining what what all that means. And then he tells them about the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. So here's something to keep in mind or a good question to ask. Whose perspective do you think these parables are told from? God's or man's? Who do you think the main man in, who do you think the the, the merchant and the, the guy who buys the field, who do you think they represent? Who? Let me, let me, see, I was always taught that it was us, right? I was always taught, well, yeah, that's you. You're supposed to value the kingdom of God this way. I'm not saying that's wrong but I'm not saying I, I want to show you something here whenever Jesus is explaining the parable of the weeds just a few verses before this he tells them that he is the man who sowed the good seed and that the field was the world so you following this Jesus was saying he was the main character in that parable I think Jesus was the main character in all of these parables I think Jesus was the mustard seed, is the mustard seed. The kingdom came when he came. That's pretty small. And now he's everywhere. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you're following with me, if Jesus is the man that's pictured in these two parables, if he is the guy who's buying the field for the hidden treasure, if he is the man who is giving up everything so that he can buy the pearl of great price, what is he telling us about the kingdom? Because this is actually the nugget of gold Of what this verse is about what this, is, what this parable is trying to teach us If he's that man What does this tell us? What's he wanting us to understand? Hmm? <laughs> I'll give you two ideas that I think The first one is I think Jesus is telling us How much the kingdom of God Is worth to God See I think we always preached it And looked at it from how much it's supposed to be worth to us But I think Jesus wants us to understand how much it was worth to God. I have come to believe that the kingdom of God is the bullseye of the entire Bible. That this is the focus from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, as I was studying it, I found the first kingdom verse in Exodus. 19, verse 5. God says there, he says, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar to the hidden treasure in the field? A treasured possession? Though he owns the whole earth, he buys the whole field to have it? Kind of sounds familiar to me, doesn't it, to you? God wanted his kingdom back. He wanted heaven and earth to overlap and interlock again like he created it originally. That was always his plan. Look how he finishes that. He says, "And you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you heard any other place in the Bible where we're called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Second Peter, look at what it says there. Second Peter, oh, I'm sorry, First Peter, two nine through ten. Peter told the Christians then. He said, "But you are a chosen race." Now, by the way, I don't think that he's talking about Jew and Gentile kind of race. I don't think he's talking about ethnicity. Adam's name in Hebrew means humanity. Eve's meant life. In Romans, Paul talks about this a lot. and He starts off in Romans 5 and he says The old humanity was in Adam. Jesus is now the new Adam, the second Adam, the new humanity. There is a new kind of human being on the planet now. And that's what he's referring to. Peter is saying you guys are a new race, a new species of human. In fact, this whole kingdom of God, kingdom of light thing is a message telling the rest of the world there is a different way to be human. I believe that we are most fully human when we're in Christ and in submission to God because that's who created us and that's what we're supposed to be like. And Peter's reminding them of that. I believe this was God's plan all along. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sound familiar? Sound like Exodus? A people for God's own possession Sound a little bit like Matthew 13 and Exodus 19? You know, this whole thing about being a priest. You realize that a priest's job was to stand in the presence of God and represent the people who could not come into the presence of God. All right, now think for a second. If we're a royal priesthood, now this is presuming that you're in the kingdom of God, that you've sworn allegiance to the king, and you've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, then you are now a priest. In fact, the whole nation is a priesthood. And if the job of a priest is to stand in the presence of God, and if you're in the kingdom of God, you do stand in the presence, God's space, you're living there with Him, then your job is to represent to God those that can't. Does that give you some more insight? Because some of you... ...have bought into the popular idea that being a Christian is about you learning how not to sin so that you can go to heaven. I think that we don't understand the weapons of the war that we're involved in. Because what we're talking about here is we're talking about heaven invading earth. And it is a war. And one of the most powerful weapons that we seldom pick up is the power of prayer. If we're standing, if we're called to be priests who stand in the presence of God to represent those who can't come in, what should we be saying to God? Isn't talking to God prayer? So my question is, that's a long way of asking, do you guys really take serious the responsibility to pray for those who don't know God yet? Who haven't heard the gospel? They don't know that there's a possibility to actually defect from the kingdom they live in to the one that they can be in, in the kingdom of light. Peter says, that's what this holy nation is about. This is what God was excited about. This is what God wanted so badly. This is what was worth so much to him. And he says, we get to be a, be a part of that. The second thing that I think, knowing that Jesus is the man in these parables teaches us, I think Jesus is telling us how much he was willing to pay in order to be your king. We just took communion And we talk a lot about Jesus' death on the cross. That was a hideous death. And there's a lot we can talk, talk about that. Excuse me a second. We talk a lot about that death. But is that really the extent of what Jesus paid so that he could be your king? You know, the night before they killed him, before they arrested him, he was sweating drops of blood wrestling with whether or not he could go through with this in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, that's not just a figure of speech, sweat and blood. That can actually happen. But it can only happen whenever you are under the most enormous stress possible. What happens is the capillaries constrict so much in the forehead that they burst. And blood will actually come out of your, your, your pores. And it looks like you're sweating blood. Some medically documented fact that it happens. Jesus was in that kind of turmoil and angst in the garden. You know, we've had other Christians who died possibly worse, more painful deaths, and went to their their doom singing. Polycarp was burned at the stake. Christians were fed to lions. I asked an older preacher one time, so why would the Son of God be sweating blood while these other guys are you know, basically glad for the chance to be a martyr. And he looked like he was taken back by the question. He said, well, I think maybe, you know, like Brother Polycarp was older and more mature than our Lord was when he was crucified. And I thought, wait, <laughs> you're saying Polycarp was more, was more mature than the Son of God. I think maybe there's a better explanation. See, I think that there was more that Jesus was paying than just the physical death. We understand martyrdom, Right. That's not an unusual thing in our world. We see it all the time. I don't think that Jesus was just being a martyr for the cause. Look at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Paul there is describing some of the price that Jesus was willing to pay. This is how much he valued the kingdom of God. It says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus was so much more than a martyr. He gave up his equality with God. Jesus wasn't created when he came to earth as Jesus. He was there in the beginning. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled amongst us. He stepped down from equality with God to become just like you and me. Nobody has ever fallen so far. Nobody has ever given up so much I hope that we don't live in a time where someone's going to burn us alive for being Christians. Or where they're going to take all of our property. I hope that never happens to us. That has happened more times than not throughout the history of Christianity. Nothing that we could sacrifice, nothing we could lose, no torture we ever go through could ever begin to compare with what Jesus gave up willingly. It wasn't just about the cross. It was about stepping down and I don't know of any verse in the Bible that teaches us that Jesus went back to being what he was before. I think that Jesus is still human. He's the first born of the new creation. Just like in Genesis God created for 6 days on the 7th he rested, I think God is creating again a new creation Paul called it. And when we're in him, we're a part of that new creation, that new humanity, that new man, the NIV calls it. A new creation. That's what Jesus paid for. And it cost him his equality with God. But it didn't end there, because in verse 9 he goes on, he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You realize this is the language that you would use with a king, right? Jesus is king in his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that one day he's going to hand the kingdom back to God. But just like in the Old Testament, God ruled his nation through kings, God is ruling his kingdom through Jesus as our king right now. And it says, And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the Greek word kurios, which means owner. What we're talking about here is one day... See, right now, we're in a minority. If you believe, as I believe, that Jesus owns everything, that it's all His. Every saint, every sinner, everything, every stone, every pebble, every star, He is the rightful owner. We are in the minority. Not that many people on this planet believe that Jesus is really Lord. The really sickening thing is is we have a lot of people who are Christians who say flippantly that Jesus is Lord and have no idea of what being an owner means. And the testimony and the example of their lives suggests anything other than Jesus really owns them. Like they really don't take it for serious. That's how these words turn into buzzwords and just religious jargon and lose their effectiveness and their meaning. But one day everyone will understand that Jesus is the owner. That's what Peter's saying. And why? It's going to be to the glory of God the Father. One day, everybody's going to see the things that we're talking about. They're either going to see it from a position of being in God's kingdom, or they're going to be, see it from a position of resisting God's kingdom and being his enemies. I think that Jesus tells us this parable in Matthew 13 about the treasure that's hidden in the field, and the pearl of great price, because he wants us to know how much this kingdom was worth to him. How much it was worth to God. How much they'd planned for this. How much they were willing to pay and sacrifice to have it. And if that's true, then how should we respond to the value of the kingdom? Well... I've got one way that I would suggest. I think that Jesus wants us to respond by valuing the kingdom the way that he has. Matthew 6.33 ought to be awful familiar to us. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you think that Jesus, from what we just looked at, do you think that Jesus sought the kingdom first? I think it was his highest priority. I think it was God's highest priority. The real question is, is is it your highest priority? You cannot make the kingdom of God your highest priority and seek it first if you don't really understand what it is. You can't do that if you don't really value it. What we're talking about here, you've been in places where Christians were there and we're all together, like right here. There is a different culture inside this building right now than there are on Monday morning, tomorrow morning when you go to work, right? Because here, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That he owns everything. And there's a different flavor to our community together. It feels different when you live inside the kingdom of God and you're around that. But whenever you're not around it, you see it in stark contrast. We know the difference between light and dark, don't we? We know the difference from those that love Jesus and those that don't. Well, let me just ask you, whose team do you want to win? Do you want to see the kingdom of God advance? Do you love that idea? Do you value that idea? Or are you okay with all the rape and murder, lying, injustice, unfaithfulness that's in the world around because that's the contrast God wants to bring heaven here he values it enough to sacrifice everything to have it happen do you really want the kingdom of God to come here that's what it means to seek first isn't it his kingdom and his righteousness do you value it enough to do that to pay that price what exactly will the kingdom of God cost you First of all, before we talk about that, I want to to make this point really clear. Whenever Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he uses that word, we can say that so quickly that we can assume again what that means. For some of us, we would be much more inclined to value the kingdom of God if we could take it on our terms. We are not called to take the kingdom of God on our terms. We're t- called to take it on his terms. And he's going to tell us a little bit about those terms. Look over in Luke 14. I think it's where Jesus tells us what the kingdom will cost us. He tells us in many places, but I think that this will give us a pretty good overshot. It's verses 26 through 33. It's a longer chapter, so I'm going to stop and explain some things as we move through it. In verse 26 he says, If anyone comes to me, to Jesus, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This verse troubles a lot of people. How many of you guys love your moms? Jesus says you've got to hate her. Love your dad? Jesus says you've got to hate him. Kids, you, you get where I'm going with this, right? Well, this is where it helps to go back and look at what the original language means, okay? The word for hate means love less. That should spook you whenever you think about who you might hate. We're called to love the world. Oh, dagger to the heart. We hate them if we love them less. Okay, so maybe we need to repent on that one? What's Jesus saying with this? The cost is you're going to have to give all your love. If you value the kingdom of God the way that Jesus does, then you're going to need to respond by giving Him all your love. That doesn't mean that you don't get to love other people. That doesn't mean that you... It means that you love them less than you love Jesus. You love them less than you love His kingdom. High price tag? You bet. Will this turn some of you off? Most likely. If you never come back here or you never make it into the kingdom of God, it won't be because I didn't tell you the truth. Right now, we live in a society where churches, there are people standing up in pulpits just like this one all over the country and they're trying to sell you God for the least amount of commitment and let you have God on your terms and they will have to answer to Jesus for saying those things to you because that's a bait and switch. So I'm trying to tell you what I believe Jesus says. Now you're free to disagree. I hope you disagree based on what you study out of the Bible, not just out of what you hope is right. But I can't understand this being anything else. The cost of discipleship, the cost of the kingdom is all your love. Nothing can be more valuable to you than the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't shy away. He says your most cherished relationships, they can't be more important than the kingdom of God. Second thing, we'll find over here in the next verse, verse 27, he says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus saying we all got to get crucified on a hill? No, probably not. So there's probably something that he's trying to communicate here, right? Are you familiar with what crucifixion was really all about? Crucifixion was more than just killing a guy. They could have done that in an alley. They could have done that with a big hammer or a sword, cliff, throw him off. Lots of different ways to kill people. Crucifixion was supposed to be a terrorizing event. And it wasn't so much about me trying to kill Jason. It was about me trying to scare you into obeying me, using him as an example. So what they would do is, I mean, this was a public spectacle. And it was absolutely humiliating. You were going to be killed, but that wasn't good enough. They were going to drag it out. They didn't crucify you in a dark room somewhere. They crucified you along public highways. And then they would not only do that, but they would put a sign on you that would say what you're guilty of and why you're being killed. So if you were being crucified for being a thief or a rebel, your sign would say thief, rebel. Jesus' sign said king of the Jews. They thought they were mocking him. But it was accurate. What will it cost you? If you value the kingdom the way that Jesus did, what will it cost you to be a part of it? Well, I think the second thing here is it's going to cost you your freedom and your reputation. Jesus didn't get to do everything he wanted to do. He didn't get to say everything he wanted to say. He only got to say what the Father told him to say and the way that the Father told him to say it. And his reputation. <sighs> He could have wiped out the entire earth, and he stood in front of a guy, men, who had no power, spit you know, on him. Man, you ever have anybody spit on you? Oh, if anything will make you want to waffle them. That you know, I've had people do that. You know, uh, it's it's horrible. But, gee sometimes I couldn't beat up the guys that spit on me. They were just too big. That makes you, that changes how you feel about it a little. <laughs> but what, when you know you can just tie him into a knot, and they think they're all that. And Jesus was surrounded by hordes of people who had no clue who he really was. And they humiliated him intentionally, and he allowed it. They put him they naked. They marched him through town naked after they had beat him almost to the point of death. And they put a sign on him. Then they nail him to a chunk of wood next to criminals to make a spectacle out of him. Jesus tells us, we have, if we're going to follow him, we have to pick up our cross. And I think the imagery is that we're going to lose our freedom. We're going to lose our reputation. The sign that we're going to wear says, I believe Jesus is Lord. And that's why I act this way. And that will cause you to have a bad reputation in some places. Get ready for people to mock you. Have you ever been mocked? Yeah. I've been mocked for my faith. Here's the problem a lot of times we run into as Christians. We kind of want to flip the sign around in certain company. Certain situations. Yeah, I'll wear the sign, but maybe I'll just turn it in where people can't quite see it. That is not, that's a no-go. Again, the kingdom comes on Jesus' terms, not ours. I know, again, you can find all kinds of churches. If you're looking for a church that can tell you you can have it on your terms, and that God's just going to bless you and do all these great things for you, if you just do a few certain things, then you're probably in the wrong church here. I don't think I've got his permission to teach it that way. But again, I'm going to be held responsible for what I teach you. That's what the Word says. So whether I tick you off or I thrill you is of no consequence to me. I want to please my Master. So I'm going to do my best to tell you the truth. And there's another reason in this verse as to why I'm going to tell you it straight and why you need to hear it straight. But I'll get to that in a second. Here's the third thing, and it's the last verse. He says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says we have to give it all up. You cannot cling to this world. You cannot cling to the life that you want and his kingdom. You have to treasure one over the other. These two do not fit together. Will you forsake everything? I don't know. Between all your love, your freedom, your reputation, and everything else, I think Jesus covers it all. Do you value the kingdom of God, this invasion of heaven on earth? Do you have a concept? Do you want to see that happen enough that you will pay this price? Do you want to see this greater Alton area look more like heaven? Do you want to see families that stay together for the right reasons? Do you want to see people stop being abused? Do you want to see injured people healed? Do you want to see an end to the madness and the craziness? That only happens in this kingdom, not in that one. And it's possible. But you've got to value that. Do you want God's team to win or not? You can't have it on your terms. You'll have to take it only on His So back in the middle here, I skipped over some verses. Let's come back and catch them real quick. In verse 28, he says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish I've been a Christian long enough to watch people say, yes, I want the kingdom. Yes, I'll pay it all. And then someone says, you can't live with your boyfriend anymore. And they say, I'm done paying the price. And the rest of the world mocks. They mock. You said it was worth everything and you won't even give that up. And it makes Jesus look like a punk. And why, would you, why in the world would you embrace a religion that offers you no real change of life, only more headache and obligation? There's a difference between church and kingdom. There's a difference between what you're commonly sold as church and Christianity these days and what is actually the gospel of the kingdom of God. He goes on and he says or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 Or else while the other is still a great way off he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace Why does he say that and why does he say it here Jesus is advancing He's the king with 20,000 He cannot be defeated. He can be resisted. Which will you be? If you've got any semblance of sanity and wisdom in you, before he gets there, you surrender and ask for terms of peace. You're somewhere in the mix on this this morning. Everyone here is either in the kingdom or not in the kingdom the worst place of all is to think you're in the kingdom and not be so I am calling you out this morning if you're not paying this price or you're not willing to pay this price you need to understand there is a king marching on you you've said you were loyal to him and you've given other people the impression that you're on his team how do you think he's going to deal with you when it comes down to it, I hope you'll take that challenge seriously. See, we have to count the cost. Yeah, you know, I, I love the idea of having a big church. I wish that we had 5,000 people here this morning. I would rather have five people that are committed to seeing the kingdom of God come, seeing heaven come to earth, than I would have a church of 5,000 who are just buying into American religion. Who are saying they're Christians, but they will not pay the price? What about you? Are you satisfied with a powerless religion? Or do you want so much, like I do, to see the real kingdom come? Are you willing to value it the way that Jesus did? Look at, there's another one of these parables. Gary mentioned it last week. It's in Matthew 13:33. And Jesus says there that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The reason why this one caught my my attention is because that same word hid is the same word that's used in our verse about the treasure that's hidden. I think God is saying that the kingdom of heaven is something that he's hidden in the rest of the world. Now, when it says hidden, I don't think he means that it's out of sight so that people can't find it. What does leaven do to a a lump of dough? It takes it over, doesn't it? I want you to realize this morning, the kingdom of heaven is here. It has been here for 2,000 years. It is advancing. It may not be growing as fast in the United States, but you know what? Christianity is a lot broader and the church is bigger than just this country. The church is growing in other nations at incredible rates. The kingdom of God is advancing. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. You can't stop it. Jesus has already won the war. Satan has been defeated. Some of our older folks that remember World War II, remember Vietnam. Whenever we signed the peace treaty, did the bullets stop flying? No, there's always somebody who doesn't get the word, right? (laughs) There's always skirmishes that go on. I'm telling you, at the cross, Satan was defeated. That's what the Bible says. But the fighting still goes on. There are still bullets flying for a while, not forever. Eventually, Jesus will come back when the time is right, when the Father wants him to come back. He will come back. Whose side do you want to be on? It's coming either way. Do you want to help the king? Or do you want to resist the king and slow him down? Which one do you want to be? Will you pay the price? That's the question that I want you to... The last two questions that I've got for you there. I want you to deal with it. I'm done. So I'm wrapping up. Worship team, if you want to get ready. I'm going to pray and uh, give you guys a chance to... To think about this lesson a little bit, I hope that you will go home, that you'll go to the internet and pull up these, these notes, maybe listen to the audio again. I mean, I didn't do the greatest job presenting the information, but the information itself is very solid. I hope that you will take seriously the challenge to figure out whose team you are on. I hope that you'll decide whether or not you want to be on God's team and are you willing to pay the price and let me encourage you to pay the price ask yourself those questions how much is the kingdom of heaven worth to me how much is it worth to me do you want to see this world look like heaven you can, you can narrow it down by starting do I want my family to look like heaven do I want my neighborhood to look like heaven do you Are you willing to pay the price? I think the world has had enough of people who say that they're Christians, that they're all for God, and they won't pay the price. I think it's time to see the real thing. I hope you guys are with me on that. Because I think God can do some amazing things in our world and in our lifetimes. The fields are white, man. You know what he means by that. Hard work's been done. It's just out there to be gathered up. There are people to tell, and let them make a choice. I'm going to quit. We're going to pray, and uh, I hope that God will bless you with this lesson. Heavenly Father, uh, <sighs> I, I feel like I've, I've been—I uh, don't know—pretty intense this morning. But Father, I think Your Kingdom requires us to have that kind of intensity, and to talk about it straight. Father, I pray that You will bring Your Kingdom. Jesus told us to to pray that your kingdom would come. And Father, we want to be a part of that, not an obstacle to it. And Father, we, we do have our issues with sin. We don't walk like we ought to. But Father, I pray that you'll help us to have the hearts that are willing to pay the price to give you all of our love and let your spirit grow us. That we would learn how to work together to be like you wherever we go. So that people can see there is a different way to be human. There's a different kind of humanity. It's the kind of humanity that is found in Jesus. Father, we, we still don't understand. There's so much we, we just don't quite get yet. But we pray that you'll help us to be students at heart. Help us to dig into your word. And Father, help us to believe you. And to put our faith in you. And Father, to surrender to, to Jesus as King.